Today, we speak with Dr. Christophe Meville, who is the Director of Education and Pharmacy Development at Buron. Christophe creates training programs, both online and in print, for pharmacists and retailers on homeopathic medicines, teaching them how to treat common health conditions. Before his more than 30-year career with Buron, Dr. Meville was a university hospital pharmacist in France. He is a sought-after expert on homeopathic medicines and its practical uses for consumers as well as medical experts, and a frequent guest on radio programs across the U.S. Dr. Meville has also co-authored several published works and has presented homeopathic topics at scientific meetings. I really learned a lot from this episode, and I hope you do too. Enjoy. Welcome to the Homeopathy Hangout, where we discuss all things homeopathy from around the world. And now my mum and your host, Eugenie Kruger. Hello, homies, and a very warm welcome to Homeopathy Hangout. Today, we speak with Christophe Meville, who is the Director of Education and Pharmacy Development at Boiron, the world leader in homeopathic medicines. Welcome, Christophe. Thank you for having me this morning, Eugenie. It is such a pleasure. And I like that you say this morning because it's actually evening your time and it's morning here. But, you know, <laughs> that's the fun thing about these time zones. And actually, it doesn't work out too bad here with Perth and America. We're about 12 hours ahead of you guys. So usually we can still record at an OK time. And you said you've just had your practice, your violin as well. You've probably have you had your dinner yet? Yeah, I had just a bite. You had your, you had your violin. And so you're ready to do some more work and, and uh just catch up for a recording to share with our listeners a little bit about Buron. But before we do, can you tell us your personal journey of how you were first introduced to homeopathy? Well, I was a teenager plagued with uh, allergies, hay fever. My uh, dear mother didn't want to, you know, give me too many uh, antihistamines because at that time, the side effects were very, very uh, intense with lots of sedation. Mm. And of course, I was... Uh, you know, learning and this interferes. So she decided to uh, get me treated by a physician who was also skilled in homeopathy and acupuncture. And I remember that was the first time I had to take these little tubes. And I remember exactly that he gave me gelsemium. He gave me like a podium. He gave me a couple of medicines also for hay fever, like allium sipa. And I was puzzled because it was so strange. And I was uh, 15, 16, so uh, I started to explore in the local library. And I found a book called uh, The Doctor, the, or the Physician, the Patient, and Homeopathy, where two doctors, uh, both, they both passed away, unfortunately, but I met one of them in Canada, Dr. Picard. They were explaining in very simple terms for the public the specific as the really specific aspects of homeopathy, especially the fact that you have individual uh, treatments, means the homeopath treats the patient more than he treats the disease. And for me, my family on my father's side, they are physicians and surgeons. And for me, this was absolutely fantastic. And on a young mind like this, those first impressions are very, they last a long time. Uh, so, 
okay, I, I read all the books I could. I started work, work, reading the life of Hahnemann and his struggles in Germany to discover a new method of treatment and how he was successful and chased from the city because he was too su- successful and went from and so on and refined, experimentally refined his method. Okay. And then a little bit later, I started my uh, studies in uh, in pharmacy. So completely different setting, of course. I still took the 36 hours optional for homeopathy. And unfortunately, the teacher was certainly a, a great pharmacist, but not a very good teacher. Uh, <laughs> and sometimes the experts are, are the worst teachers. And she, she transformed it into, a, you know, an exercise like uh, learning the yellow pages for those who know what the yellow pages yes. are <laughs> in this day and age. Uh, it was, so it was disgusting. So after my studies, when I became a pharmacist, I, I went to, a, I, in fact, I did a degree in hospital pharmacy. Needless to say, we had very, very few instances uh, when we were dealing with homeopathy, only when mm-hmm. patients were coming with their own treatments and ask, can I keep my treatment? And I knew enough to say, yes, of course you can keep your treatment because there are no interactions. And all the other, the doctors and the interns around me would say, you know that stuff? I said, yeah, I know that stuff. And how can you say there is no interaction? I said, the way it's prepared. And that allowed me to tell them how it was. And of course they say it's not. Uh, and say, well, it's not there. But patients keep taking them and are happy. Uh, that's the empirical side of, of homeopathy is very interesting. And then after my military service, uh, and I dropped hospital pharmacy because it was not for me. And uh, I joined the Born Group in, 90, in 1990. And of course, very soon, I think people around me found that uh, I could explain in very simple terms, especially to pharmacists using their language, I could explain homeopathy in scientific terms, not using notions that were, you know, when you speak to uh, uh, someone, you need to speak their language. Mm -hmm. And there is always a language for each profession. There are certain terms that are, oh, make sense. So if you know how to speak their language, they, you're more credible. That's Mm -hmm. human nature. So I started to speak homeopathy to, to pharmacists. And of course, the best way to learn is to teach yes because you anticipate the question there is a you know you, you start what what are the questions i absolutely do not want them to ask and that's where you start digging and you start learning and you start asking questions to homeopath to uh you, you dig in the literature and then this is where i really started to uh love it and attend consultations and even uh, deliveries. I did uh, three deliveries under homeopathic treatments with colophylum, with uh, simicifuga or actiara depending on where you are. And really seeing how, depending on how the dilution you choose and the, uh, you have the contraction dramatically reinforced and speeding. And at the same time, the, the mother starting to say, Oh, I feel more productive. I feel it's, it's working and I'm yes, working with that it. That happened for me. <laughs> so this was for me, of course, as a witness, this was uh, eye opening. And I said, there is something behind this. So in uh, 1994, I had the opportunity to 
join our U.S. subsidiary, and I went uh, to California to oversee the operations in our West Coast branch in Simi Valley, California. After 11 years, the headquarters decided I had too much of a great time in Southern <laughs> California. So they say, you go come back to Philadelphia the headquarters where I, I learned how to shovel snow and, uh, and those, all these things. And that's where I am. Wow, what a story. So, Christoph, do, do you happen to know if they still teach homeopathy as part of the pharmacy degree in France? So in France, in the pharmacy schools, you have, in fact, very few, I think it's less than 10 uh, faculties where homeopathy is taught mm. and it's optional. Well, that is in France. I will tell you something. It's probably because I left. Because here in the United States, we have, there are about 150 schools of pharmacy. And uh, I designed a, a kit, a complete kit for teachers, where you have not only the material for the students, but you have also the material for the teacher. And we teach them how to teach homeopathy. And oh. uh, there are card games, there are uh, online games for interactivity to put the students into real situations. And the angle we're taking is this. Even if you don't believe in homeopathy, you know, if, even if you think that, you know, it's something that, you know, is not serious. Mm. Nevertheless, homeopathic medicines are drugs and uh, patients will use them. And you'll have patients coming to you and say, I'm pregnant and breastfeeding. I'm sorry. Uh, can I take uh, gelsemium? Uh, I have uh, uh, my treatment for arthritis. Can I take uh, Rustoc 6C? And you don't know. If you don't know, you lose the trust. Another aspect that I underline to pharmacy teachers is this. is uh, Someone comes to you and says, okay, I took this medicine, homeopathic medicine, and I developed this side effect. What are the odds that the side effect is linked to homeopathy uh, versus another cause that needs to be investigated? Mm. Well, it happened to me several times where... I was able to work with a physician to make long story short, but I was able to work with a physician and say, it's not because you have belladonna 60 on the, on the formula that it explains the fact that the poor guy, the poor kid, 13 year old cannot uh, focus his eye, cannot as diplopia. So we need to investigate. And indeed, in that case, the poor kid had the tumor behind his <gasps> eye. And we were able, the physician was able to diagnose it, remove it, it is fine. But at first, the homeopathic medicine was blamed. Mm. And uh, I said to, uh, to pharmacists, if only you know the signification of what is better than a 60, you can discuss with the healthcare professional and say, what are the odds for this medicine to provoke such a side effect? You need to investigate further. In other terms, you need to know. Even if you don't believe, you need to know because those medicines are there and patients trust them. So over the 150 schools in pharmacy in the U.S., uh, we have delivered more than 80 uh, kits of this lecture. And we are constantly either uh, doing the lecture or training the teacher to present the lecture. So to our lecture, and because it's very interactive and because it it puts the student in front of very practical problems such as I described, 
there is a real interest and I've been reinvited again and again in, in some uh, uh, faculties because they, they trust me and I speak their language. And I said, I'm not here to promote homeopathy. I'm here to inform you of what you need to know as pharmacist. And then several of them tell me, you know, I've been recommended your stuff. Just, you know, I don't know how it works, but patients are happy. They come back. They want more. You are giving me goosebumps. That is so amazing. <laughs> and I love the angle that you're coming from because nobody wants to be seen to not be a professional in their field. And yes, if you're a pharmacist, you need to know about all the drugs and homeopathy is also a drug. So you actually have a big gap in your education if you're not educating yourself on homeopathy. I like that angle. That's great. <laughs> well, now, we, we, need to, we need to find the, the, the right approach uh, because if we say uh, right and forefront, uh, you know, you need to know that that doesn't work. It's interesting because for a medicine that's supposedly placebo, we sure get blamed for a lot of side effects and a lot of, you know, <laughs> a lot of issues. People are so quick to say, oh, yeah, that's because you're using homeopathy. But in the same breath, they will say, oh, no, homeopathy is placebo. So it can't be both. So people need to make up their minds <laughs> about homeopathy. Now, but uh, I'm just going to say, uh, we in Australia, we would pronounce the company name Boyron. So I just want to put it out there for any of the Aussies listening that are going, what is this Boron company? Now, you have been there for over 30 years. And from what I've read, you actually have, you were, when you started, the original owners, who I'm guessing has passed now because the company's been around for over 90 years. Yes. But uh, they were still there when you started there. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the, the two gentlemen that started the company? I had a bit of a read up on it last night. It was fascinating. And then, where, you know, just the history of the company itself. So uh, uh, Jean and Henry Boron were two twin brothers. They were pharmacists and scientists. They were they had a diploma in science and they were uh, invited by a, a group of homeopaths to form a company in order to manufacture homeopathic medicine that would be standardized. That means they would be, always be made the same way. Uh, because of course, if uh, a physician uh, makes a homeopathic medicine and another physician makes another, uh, uh, the same homeopathic medicine himself, you have differences. The, it's like uh, making a chocolate cake. Uh, you have the recipe, but it's never made the same. And in the mind of the prescriber, of the mind of the person who says, okay, take a gelsemium 30C, three, five pellets, three times a day, you don't want to have in the mind, okay, where does it come from? You want to to think that it comes from a reputable uh, uh, source, and of course that it has been made according to the pharmacopeia guideline and uh, here in the U.S. in the uh, FDA guidelines, and it's always the same quality. So they built that company on these premises, and they were very, very they had a very, very scientific and pragmatic approach, and that. When I met in 1990, I was invited at the headquarters. We had to spend a few hours with Jean Boiron, who was taking care at this time of the research department. And I was there, you know, in my, uh, uh, I was 29. So you can imagine me after five, five years of hospital pharmacy, knowing everything. And I was still a little bit defiant. I was not. You know, I was very defiant and I was politely but firmly challenging him and say, how do you explain that you can transfer 
the signal uh, from the homeopathic solution, to, which is liquid, onto a pellet that is solid. If you have evaporation of the solvent when you dry the pellet, when the pellet dries, how can you explain that the signal is transferred to the solid form and then released to person patient's mouth, released and, and absorbed? And I was waiting, you know, okay. And he, he went to me with a big smile and sparkling eyes. And he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, that's a great question. You know, those are the moments you never forget because really there was a, I felt at this time, I felt, I felt already, even before he answered, I felt invested with a mission. Uh, he was, it was a very emotional moment. And it ex- explained to me that in fact, you have what is called crystallization water. That means the sugar is so polarized that it retains a lot of water molecule and it's possible to keep the signal in another form, but still the water will, will be uh, linked to the sugar molecules. I make it fast and short. But anyway, he gave me a scientific hypothesis, which needed to be tested, but was very plausible, very, some kind of logical, and I was able to understand. And from this moment, I was hooked up because my interest was, I need to explain it. I need to know how it works. And this became a mission. And the education part of my job is almost an excuse to dig and dig and try to look at uh, research and, and to put the things together because I'm absolutely convinced that the explanation, you know, some people say, oh, homeopathy doesn't work because it defies the laws of physics and chemistry. Nothing on earth defies the laws of physics and chemistry. It's just that we don't know how to apply them. <laughs> So it's a ridiculous ex- explanation. So we just need to dig a little bit more and think and make experiments and we'll find. But uh, Jean Boiron had uh, this extraordinary uh, imprint on my mind because uh, where I expected to have, you know, half-baked explanation, esoteric explanation, you know, new age stuff, uh, I got very scientific expositions. So was Jean the one that was the scientist and uh, Henry the one that was the pharmacist? They were both scientists and pharmacists. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, Henry was more dedicated. He was in Paris and more dedicated to education. Uh-huh. And Jean, after he resigned as a CEO and became head of research, he gave the CEO to uh, mm-hmm. his son, Christian. But he, he kept working in research and inspiring mm-hmm. new researchers. I sometimes think with twins, it's like they sometimes share a brain anyway. So either way, the two of them were probably, you know, connected with their, you know, their information. They, they, were, probably, they were probably connected, but they were like, uh, each of them was looking at the opposite direction. So the both of them were covering 350 degrees. Amazing. Um, you actually said something interesting. That was such a good question that you asked them all those years ago about the, the liquid being transferred to the pellets and then onto the person. I want to ask you a quick question that I get asked often. Uh, clients will always ask, why are we not allowed to touch the remedies? And I've got to tell you, over the years, I've found that even if you touch the remedies with your hands, they still work. And I hear stories of people who give their remedies to their pets in their food and the remedies still work. Now, I think there's a lot of fallacies with homeopathy. We get taught a certain way, but actually in 
practice, I found that the remedies are a lot more resilient than what we've been taught. But why do you think we get taught not to touch the palates? And do you think so, that's actually true that they don't work if you touch them? So I'll tell you, I'll give you a, a pharmacy answer. When we manufacture homeopathic medicines, and I will take the, the example of Bourne because I know that's the, the example I know the best. We go to extraordinary lengths to prevent any contamination mm. of the medicine. It makes sense. We are dealing with very diluted substances. So if we allow a fly to just drop in the solution, forgive me, that doesn't happen, but it's a very nice image. But if we, if we allow during the, the manufacturing process, contamination by dust, contamination mm. by mm. pollen, by anything, mm. or by another remedy, Mm. Uh, if we allow that to happen, we're not doing a good job. So when we deliver this medicine that has been manufactured in a protected atmosphere under conditions where you, we are using um, um, water distilled by biosmosis, extremely pure, we are using filtered air, we manufacture the medicine in rooms that are pressurized in such a way that Air from the outside cannot enter. Oh, wow. Okay. So uh, we we have a, a whole process to make sure that every tool we use is completely cleaned and rinsed three times with uh, uh, water, you know, purified by osmosis. When we give the little tube to the patient, mm. we make a pellet dispenser so the pellet arrives in their mouth untouched. Mm. Oh, it's logical. Now, of course, what happens if you touch it? Well, you're going to contaminate <laughs> it, of course, a little bit. Will it not work anymore? Yes, it will work. But there is a sense of logic, of common sense to say, when you have this medicine you purchase, when you have it in your hand, it's out of our control. Mm. But we would like to make the last, the latest efforts in order for you to take it and absorb it as perfect and pure as possible. Mm. Uh, so after that, of course, if one pellet drops, it's your last pellet, you want to take it, take it, and the medicine is inside the pellet anyway, it's not outside. But I remember that question because one of the, my first job when I was hired with Bourne was to prepare buckets of triturations, powder medicated with homeopathic medicine for turkeys. <laughs> So every month, the farmer would come and will buy two buckets of powder. And I was thinking, what is that? I said, <laughs> what, what is he doing for? with that? Oh, it's for my turkeys. <laughs> oh, my God. So I said, do, do, may I follow you and see how you give that to your turkeys and why? So he, he told me, you know, those are huge uh, enclosures where the turkeys are close close by, but still able to go to roam free in there. Uh, but when there is a, a certain type of flu, I can lose up to 95% of mm -hmm. them. But if I use the homeopathic medicine, the mortality drops to 10, 15%. So I said, okay, well, nice. How do you do that? You take each turkey and, you know, put a little <laughs> bit of, of powder in their mouth. He said, no, uh, I put that in the water. And I looked, you know, those things to deliver water to turkeys. 
this is not especially clean. Yeah. It was clean, but it is at the end of the day, you know, you have dirt in it and so on. Yeah. But the turkeys didn't mind. And, uh, you and know, the homeopathy so didn't the... mind. It still worked. Yeah, no, <laughs> and, and they, they absorbed it. And uh, he said, no, no, I, I need to use that because uh, not only can I treat my turkeys and protect them from the effect of the virus, but also those are not antibiotics or antivirals. Well, at this time, we don't didn't have antivirals, but they, he could sell his turkeys. He was not a obliged to sacrifice and destroy these turkeys because they had uh, medicine in their body. And he said, well, that's, that's the best solution for me. Oh, and, and how I amazing. Said, yeah. oh, so much for the placebo effect, you know, exactly. the turkeys, okay. They probably have a placebo effect, but you know, anyway. That is uh, amazing. But also, can you imagine just a world where farmers use homeopathy as a first resort and that antibiotics that when we consume animals who have been over-medicated, you know, it makes us so sick and and uh, it makes the land sick. You know, the poop that they then let out on the land with antibiotics in it everywhere, antibiotics in the water. And if we could just get the world to a place where our farmers are using homeopathy as a first resort, it's going to heal the whole planet. So... That would be amazing. Was this in France, by the way, or were you already in the U.S. by this it, stage? It, it was in a rural region uh, of France, on the western part of France, mm-hmm. uh, in the in the Poitou, close to Poitiers, if uh, that uh, spells. So excellent food, very nice wine, very nice region. Yeah, I was actually wondering this morning when I was getting ready for the interview, I was thinking, I wonder if Christophe misses the food in France because I've heard the food there is amazing. And and so many of our Australians that go over to Europe, they say they can eat all the bread over in Europe, but they come back here and then they get really sick from the bread. (laughs) That's the privilege of being an expatriate. You take your culture with you. And uh, yesterday I was in France and we had a burgundy fondue and uh, and oh. chocolate cake, French style and French wines. I can cook, I can cook French cuisine. So uh, when you go somewhere, you take your culture with you. Mm. So it's not completely, uh, you know, it's part of you. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm from South Africa originally and we have poiki course that we make over here. It's, um, yeah, that's easy enough to replicate over here. And, um, yeah, we, we have got very unhealthy stuff though in South African, uh, you know, traditional, <laughs> traditional culture, but it's really good and it's, you know, it fills you up and it brings back memories. <laughs> so talk to us a little bit about the manufacturing process at, uh, Baron. And obviously you've got all that pharmaceutical background as well. And, I mean, you've been there for, the company's been around for about 90 years. You've been there for 30 years. So you have had a huge hand in this company. So tell us a little bit about the manufacturing. And I just quickly want to say to our listeners, if you hop on YouTube, Baron has a great YouTube channel. There's loads of videos that they show you how they make the remedies. And it's beautiful when you see the huge glass bottles and you see the medicine being sprayed in there and the bottles are twirling around and you see everyone walking around with their hair nets and their little clipboards and it looks, you know, it, you can see it's, this is a serious company. So tell us a little bit about what's involved in the manufacturing process. So there is a, there are a couple of uh, of, of interesting uh, concepts that the Brown brothers mastered. The first one is, of course, to get the best possible raw materials. You have a little video of the two Brown brothers going with mules in the Alps. Oh. It's a black and white 1936 video, and you can see them going in the Alps and gathering the flowers. So when we ask our harvesters or contractors 
to go and gather arnica in the Alps, in the Vosges, in the uh, where it grows. We give them uh, lots of specifications. For example, they know the GPS locate the GPS coordinates of the locations. They know when the plant will be flowering because we harvest arnica uh, around the 21st of June when it flowers because we need the flower that they contained the lot a lot of uh, active ingredients we need and they harvest and they always leave uh, they never harvest more than one third of the plant to ensure sustainability those areas are far away from cities or industrial zone they are really remote being remote we ask them to have refrigerated trucks uh the crates in in which they put the plants are shallow crates so the air can circulate we ask them never to harvest after the rain because the plant is soaked and we take in account the amount of water that the plant has in order to make the mother tincture of course they know uh, that there are plants that uh, resemble arnica, which is a yellow daisy, but are not arnica. So they have to know that in order to be sure that it's arnica, you look at the petal and you need to have that little indentation. And if you see that, that's arnica. If you don't see that, it's not arnica. Although, you know, from far away, you say, oh yeah, it's a, mm. it's a yellow mm. daisy, it's the same thing. They record the location, the time, and the person who harvested and all that is conserved in the batch record. So to make a long story short, if uh, you give me the lot number on a tube of Arnica Montana 30C, I am able to tell you exactly the GPS coordinates where it has been harvested and oh, the wow. weather that uh, was at this point, because we want to be sure that the medicine is always made the same way. So it have, it, it arrives at the, the headquarters in a refrigerated truck less than 48 hours, most of the time 40, 24 hours after the harvest. And immediately it's quarantined. Means nobody touches it. There is an army of quality control, uh, uh, technicians that come under the supervision of a, of a, of a pharmacist and they examine the plant and they say, okay, is it arnica? Is it radioactive? Is it healthy? I've seen them with Geiger counters since 1986, Chernobyl. We verify that there is no radio, radioactivity because some, some plants like thyme, they concentrate the mm. uh, elements that uh, are radioactive. Mushrooms also do that. Mm. So we make sure. That, and only when they say, okay, this is Arnica. It's in good state. We have the quantity. We leave the quarantine. And immediately after they enter a set of rooms where only one batch is allowed at the same time. And between each batch, uh, there is a pharmacist looking and verifying that no residue of the previous batch is there and every material has been cleaned oh, and wow. rinsed. And the pressure goes always increasing. So, there never can be any contamination from one batch to another. So those are examples of the what we, the things that we have to master in order to prove, document and prove to any instance, French Minister of Health, the FDA, the Indian Minister of Health, that when we sell medicine in their countries, they are of the highest standards. Hmm. 
So it looks easy, but every time we, I visit the, the location and I translate for American, uh, healthcare professionals that uh, visit the plant, they say, we had no idea. When we medicate the pellets, those pellets, that was how do you ensure that the same quantity of homeopathic medicine goes on each pellet? How do you do that? If you have a pellet that's completely spherical, the quantity will be on the outside only, and it's difficult to measure. But if you make the pellet like a sponge, then the medicine will medicate the pellet in more in-depth, and therefore you'll have a more a narrower margin of error. How do you do that? Well, you can medicate the pellets in one set, but whatever you do, you never have the same quantity. But if you do in three times, in three steps, in oh. triple impregnation, okay. you have a perfect homogeneity and you can verify it with dyes. You can verify it with uh, molecules that are fluorescent, like caffeine, mm -hmm. and you examine the pellet under a spectrofluoroscope and you see that they all relinquish the same quantity of light, meaning they all retain the same quantity of homeopathic medicine. So that's what we call the validation of the process, meaning that now that the method is validated, we don't have to, we can repeat it because as you know, it is difficult to measure uh, uh, the quantity of active principle at the end of the chain. Mm. In allopathic medicine, that's something we do routinely. We take a couple of pellets of whatever you want and you measure how much uh, active ingredients it is. And it should be, uh, if, if you say uh, acetaminophen, uh, 150 grams, that's, you, you get that in each tablet. You can measure that. But in homeopathy, you cannot do that. Mm -hmm. You cannot do that. So you have to make sure that the method that you are using is validated to do that, and you can show to the FDA or the French Minister of Health or whomever, this is how we make sure that the process may produce exactly what it's supposed to do. Mm. That's fascinating. As you said that, I've just done that in a teeny tiny little amount in my clinic several years ago because I used to buy homeopathic pallets from one pharmacy, homeopathic pharmacy, and they were the hard pallets. And I was used to being able to medicate, you know, put three or four drops on there to medicate a bottle for my client. And then I'd shake it and I could see like the wetness on the outside of the pillules. But then I changed to getting my pillules from a different pharmacy and they were the soft pillules. And so when mm -hmm. I would medicate the same amount, I couldn't see whether it was medicated because they, as, as if they absorb it just a lot quicker. So I called the pharmacy and I'm like, how do I know if these pillules are actually getting covered with a medicine? And then they said, just use a little bit of food coloring. So I actually did that test and I put mm -hmm. like a couple of drops of food coloring on there and medicated it and then poured them all out. And I could see, okay, they are actually getting covered. Okay, I'm good. Because it's tricky, of course, Our um, the medicating potencies are clear and it can be hard yep. to see, but I love what you're saying about fluorescentness of it. And um, you, we did exactly the same. We did exactly the same thing as you did. We've just validated the process, making sure that what you want to do, what you get, is what you want it to do. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't validate, you don't know. And mm -hmm. if you don't know, uh, at the end, of the, uh, the the patient may not receive exactly what is needed. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's the job of a pharmacist, uh, making sure that, yes, when the physician prescribes this, the patient gets this and nothing else and not different from what the medicine will be next time or has been the time before. Mm -hmm. 
It's called reliability, and we are very proud to, make, to put that in place and explain what we are doing. I'm really glad that you've laid out this process for us of exactly the extent that Boron goes through to make sure that the product that you're getting at the end is just uh, you know, absolutely perfect because the end user will just never know this. You know, when you go grab your Boron tablets off the shelf at the shop, there's no idea that you will ever know the huge amount of work that goes into creating this product for you. And because homeopathy is so cost effective, you know, it's easy to be fooled by the fact that, oh, this must be, you know, probably not much thought that goes into making this, but actually the complete opposite is true of exactly how much work goes into making these remedies. So and it's like a, it's like a musician, you know, when you go to a concert, you see the musician playing perfect things, but, and, and smiling, but you have no idea about the, the amount of practice that went before. And that's okay because, <laughs> uh, that's exactly what we want. We, we don't want the patient to focus on, oh, you know, this and that. We say, no, just trust us. Yeah, exactly. Well, this is a good time for us to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about the amazing research that Boron has is involved in as well. Alrighty. And uh, we're back from the break. And Christoph, I wonder if you can tell our listeners a little bit about the research that Boron is involved in. Boron is the biggest homeopathic manufacturer in the world, right? Yes, indeed. And can I just, I read somewhere, it's like hundreds of millions of dollar turnover. Is that right? Um, I don't have the exact numbers, but mm-hmm. before COVID, uh, I think we were at about uh, eight, uh, more than eight hundred million uh, oh, euros amazing. worldwide, which is nothing when you think about what uh, other pharmaceutical companies are making. It's a company that is very healthy. It's tradition in Bonn that we really are very careful on how we invest. And it comes from our values that are really producing the best possible homeopathic medicine as opposed to making money. Mm-hmm. Money is important, but it's, uh, it's the oxygen that allows us to, to, uh, pursue with our mission, to complete our mission. Uh, without oxygen, you cannot breathe, but you don't live to breathe. You live to live. Mm. Uh, and so money is important. Investment, profitability, making our previous CEO, Christian Boiron, said a company is a machine to create happiness. It should create happiness to customers or patients. It should create happiness with the employees who should work for a, a decent wage and, and be happy to do what they do. And it's a, it's also a machine to create a penis to the investors who give us our money, who trust uh, us with their money in order for us to invest. So it, this is the task that we have trying to do with, uh, with, with Warren. Uh, I'm not a financial person. I will not give you the details, but this is a delicate balance to keep everyone stable and be sure that the goal is not to excessively reward uh, investors because that creates speculation. The goal is not to over invest in new products and invest in marketing. The goal is really to say in every, in every country to create the conditions for more and more physicians, patients, pharmacists, mm-hmm. healthcare professionals to benefit from this tool. And if we have that in mind, it, it becomes almost easy because we know what our priorities are. Mm. 
I would personally love to see trillion dollar homeopathic businesses on this planet because I think that, uh, you know, money often gets vilified, but the reality is, uh, you can do so much great with money as well. You know, we can help all these homeopathic organizations that are doing great work, like Homeopathy for Health in Africa. We can build homeopathic hospitals. We can help so many more people. So I am going to be really excited when we have our first trillion dollar homeopathic business and when we have loads of homeopaths around the world thriving. And when people actually, you know, when children at school decide they want to be a homeopath because they see other homeopaths thriving and, you know, having successful businesses and with that able to make a great impact in the world. Because if we have struggling homeopathic businesses, we really can't make too much of an impact. And unfortunately, you sometimes need that money to, you know, if we want to start a homeopathic hospital here in Australia, which is my dream, there used to be four homeopathic hospitals in Australia at close in the 1950s. It was there from about the 1840s till the 1950s. And, you know, for us to be able to do that, we need that money for research. We need money to build the hospitals. We need money to be able to help people. So when um, I read that, you know, Boyron is such a great financial position, I was really excited. And I hope that more homeopathic pharmacies and businesses will get to that point as well. So talk to us a little bit about the research, Christoph, because you, um, Boron has a big hand in that as well. So, of course, uh, research as a, uh, sorry, Boron as a uh, research and development department. And we have several projects that are in this department. And of course, because they are not uh, published yet. I will not talk about them, but yeah, I will tell you that it is active and very promising. So what we do also, we uh, um, help teams in the world that have interesting projects. We help them to you know, complete their project. And this is where the uh, Homeopathic Research Institute comes in, into play because the HRI does something wonderful. They call, they try to coordinate the projects around the world. That means they have this concept. You'll have them talking and they will talk about it much better than I can. Mm-hmm. But there is a the concept of critical mass of research. If, if a researcher or a team comes up with uh, clinical studies that shows that, uh, I don't know, uh, Gelsemium is very efficient to treat a certain type of anxiety and verified on 200 patients, double Golden standard means randomized uh, against placebo or reference product mm. and so on and so forth. Very credible. That's great, but that's not enough. We need to reproduce that mm. because homeopathy is uh, considered as controversial by so many scientists. And this is because it's very difficult to work on these diluted substances. It's not easy. We have to come up with even higher standards than uh, studies on uh, non-homeopathic medicines. We are subject to higher standards. So that means, wow, it's incredible. That study shows that gelsemium 30C works on this. Yeah, Yeah, but can we reproduce it? Yes, we have to reproduce it. Indeed, it is It is. Unfortunately or fortunately in the human nature that uh, we need a higher level of proof for these kind of things. So the HRI tries to coordinate the researchers and say, okay, it would be better if many of you could work on this type of research, let's say anxiety, because we already have a lot of positive research and we need to back it up. Mm. 
But if you start to work on something else like Alzheimer, it's interesting. But we will have so many little studies with few a level of proof that is not efficient, that is not high enough, sorry, as compared to if we co- focus on a couple of pathologies and, and build uh, a critical mass, then there will be a snowball effect. And everybody will say, oh, I want to try myself because when a field of research is successful, it attracts new researchers. So the Homeopathic Research Institute does a wonderful job to uh, inform uh, researchers about methodology problems, about uh, challenges, about also telling them, maybe you should work on this because that's where we need a level of proof that's higher. And not only on clinical, but also on biophysical, uh, chemical, biological studies. So they really orchestrate the homeopathic research around the world. So instead of noise, it becomes a symphony. It becomes something that makes sense Mm -hmm. because we need to break that wall. And by breaking that wall, you don't just throw a little stone to that wall, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, and, and 100 people throwing a little stone on that wall doesn't do anything. But if you build a big rubber and, and boom, you make a, that is efficient. Mm-hmm. It's an image, but uh, it's not very peaceful, but uh, <laughs> you, yeah. you understand. <laughs> so we, uh, Boron supports the HRI because we think their action is absolutely essential mm-hmm. to have a breakthrough in these next years in homeopathy and, and convince a lot of scientists that there is more to know. Mm-hmm. There is nice. more to discover. Amazing. Yeah, I can't wait to have them on the show. I've got Rachel booked in for December, so I've still got a long way to wait to get to chat with her. But the work that they're doing is amazing. And many of our listeners, if you've watched the documentary Just One Drop, um, you know, they're heavily involved in that documentary. And and if you just go on their website, um, HRI, I think it's Dash something, but if you just type in homeopathic research. research, yeah, that's research. Yeah. if you just type in homeopathic research institute, you'll find out a lot of uh, work that, uh, of what they do and, and you can support them as well because they didn't need the funds to be able to, you know, do the work that they do. So any what they do also, what they do, which is invaluable is they take uh, research that is published and that uh, tends to look at uh, negative results and they, the methodology and how the negative research, the renegative results have been obtained. And in many cases, and one, of course, is very known in Australia, but I will not talk too much about yeah. it. Uh, if you examine how the research has, and the outcomes have been obtained, you think, you say that, yes, there are bias. There are, there are methodological flaws that needs to be resolved. I don't think we can, we cannot suspect people of being of ill intense, mm. but we can all look at ourselves and say, there are biases that we might be unaware of. Mm. And this is what they try to help, mm. uh, you know, and this is very important. We all have biases. It would be a bias to think that we don't have a bias. <laughs> so, uh, Christoph, we have a Facebook group for the listeners. It's called the Homeopathy Hangout Podcast Facebook group. And in there, our listeners 
can chat about episodes that we've had and they can put in questions that they want to ask for the guests. And uh, Amy Maloney posted in the group last night that she wanted to ask you your thoughts on single remedies versus combination remedies. And I know that's probably a, a whole other kettle of fish and we don't have that much time left, but do you have a quick answer for her on? Yeah, so, uh, of course. Of course. And let me go back to uh, the source. When you look at uh, Hanman's prescriptions, at the beginning of his uh, professional life, he was prescribing only one medicine at a time for a very good reason. He wanted to make sure that only one medicine produced uh, the same type of result. Uh, if you mix two, you don't know which one works. Mm -hmm. So he wanted to make sure that Belladonna was working on fever, that uh, Charles Simeon was working on anxiety and so on. So at the beginning, he was instructing his, his colleagues and his uh, followers, uh, really be sure of the action of one medicine before you give another one. And, and he said also, don't tell the patient not to take any other substance, like like mint, like coffee. People mm -hmm. were sucking on, on uh, licorice, uh, to freshen their breath, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and so he said, no, 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 you stop that now because that may interfere with my treatment. Yeah. So of course that, that came and said, Oh, don't take mint, don't take coffee, don't take tea. Oh, mm -hmm. well, okay. We know, we know what it is now. So, but when you look at the list of his prescriptions, when he was in Paris in the years, uh, 1840s before his death, mm -hmm. He was combining medicines and he was combining medicines because he was certain each of the medicines were working as, you know, they should and they were not interfering. So one principle is you give as few medicine as you need mm -hmm. and it, it's, it's valid for any type of treatment, allopathic, homeopathic. You never give too many. Mm -hmm. Another principle is this. You want to prescribe in such a way that you want to always be in position to say, if this medicine doesn't work, I can replace it with another one. Mm. So this implies being careful in not overloading. That said, there are combinations, and Braun has a, a few of them, mm. uh, combinations that, uh, well, have six, seven, eight medicines, mm. and they work fine. Mm. Are they the best? No, it's probably not the best treatment. But... At least the patient was able to take a medicine and get relief from homeopathy with all the advantages of it. Mm. So the top is, of course, skilled prescribers with few medicines. Nevertheless, the reality of the, of the world is that it is always better for a patient to pick up a box of medicine for cold mm. uh, in a health food store rather than take acetaminophen. I completely agree. That was the best answer ever. <laughs> now, Amy Vickers, this one last quick little question. Amy Vickers in our Facebook group asked, how many remedies does Boron have in stock? How many different remedies? So the list of, uh, I am maintaining the list of generics that uh, Boron USA carry mm -hmm. in the US. It's about uh, 1,200. Okay, amazing. Uh, in France, I think it's a little bit more than that. I think it's 1700. No, of course we have, if you ask for Arnica Montana 30C, we have a stock. If you yeah. ask for, you know, smaller medicine, we have less stock, mm -hmm. but we try to have a little stock of medicine that are rarely prescribed, but are essential. And that's mm -hmm. the job of a pharmacist mm -hmm. is, uh, even if you use that vaccine only once uh, every 10 years, 
like the rabies vaccine, it's not very much used, but it's yeah. so essential. You need to have a star. So same principle for homeopathy. We have the, the pig runners and we have a stock of the ones that are lesser, less prescribed, but mm -hmm. as essential. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are some remedies that you're not allowed to give in the USA. I think opium is one of them, homeopathic opium, which, you know, once no, again, you, oh, you, you can? can. Oh, okay. Oh, no, you have, it's oh, a question of rules. As oh, long as okay. the med as long as the medicine is registered in the HPOS, that means the homeopathic pharmacopoeia, you can do it. However, the Food and Drug Administration has not allowed exemptions to controlled substances like opium, naloxone, morphine, dilutions of opiates or uh, cocaine, and so on. We we never really worked with them to change that in France. The Minister of Health says, okay, dilutions of opium higher than, let's say, 2C or 3C are exempt. And you can order opium in the airport at the pharmacy uh, for constipation before going back to Australia. Oh, interesting. But you have to make sure that in Australia, the same medicine is also exempt. Mm -hmm. In in US, it's not exempt, so it will be the customs will uh, you know, torture and harass you because opium 30C is considered a controlled substance and we need a prescribe, a prescription for that. Oh, interesting. So interesting. it is, a, it is authorized, but the legislation, the regulation is not the same depending on the countries. Oh, very interesting. And then once again, you know, why are they wanting to, uh, make, stronger controls around it when apparently homeopathy is placebo. Sorry, but that bit always gets no, me. <laughs> it, it, you know, the people who do the regulations are not the, are not always the, the people who are doing hard science. Mm. They, it, the, the aspect, the approach is very different. And also the investment of the homeopathic community, it is more to make a very important medicine very available mm. rather than looking at well, opium is interesting, but it's not a very common medicine. But mm. it will come. It will come at some point. We will overcome that and make a opium 30C, a, a medicine that you can purchase over the counter. Amazing, because it is such a valuable remedy. I use it in my clinic all the time. I, yeah, I don't know how I would, um, you know, be able to prescribe without a remedy in my kit. Christoph, it has been wonderful to chat with you. I actually, I've got a list of questions here that I want to ask you, and there's like a whole bunch yeah. more questions on there. So we'll have to do a round two at some stage because it has been so interesting chatting with you. I can't believe how much I've learned. And I tell you what, I've got a whole new respect for Baran. I am just so amazed by the incredible work that you do. And may you have 90 years more and beyond. <laughs> Thank you so well, much for your time today. <laughs> That will be 151. So I don't know if I will be healthy, <laughs> but it was a pleasure. And, uh, you know, let us know. Let's let Deborah know when you are ready and we'll make another session. It has been a pleasure as well. Thank you so much.